Straw Hut Media. With Thanksgiving behind us and December finally here, almost everyone I know is full-on ready for Christmas, even the grinchiest of them all. To be honest, it seemed like everyone was ready to go a while ago. Maybe it's because Christmas represents the end of the year and we're all so ready for 2021. Maybe it's because Christmas is comforting. Whatever the reason, let's do it too with our very own gay Santa, Leo Treadway. I'm Levi Chambers and this is Pride. My name is Leo Treadway. I am living in St. Paul, Minnesota. For about 30 years, I have been making Santa Claus appearances. In addition to his years as Santa, Leo also served in the Vietnam War. He's been a leader in the Lutheran Church, a mental health counselor, and an HIV AIDS and LGBTQ activist. When you say it all together at once, it sounds like a completely unrelated list of things, and it's hard to imagine how one person ends up within all those roles. But there is a common thread. What is the theme that links everything together? I believe the notion that I have had my entire life, it is important to help others particularly those most in need. And throughout my life, I have been in various uh, situations where I have been challenged to be a bit creative with that. But certainly the Santa Claus, St. Nicholas appearances follow in, in that format. When Leo was a young man in the early 1960s, he went to college to pursue a career in chemical engineering. But it didn't take long for him to realize that it wasn't where he wanted to be. I had very little interest in it, and uh, although I had thought that's what I would do my entire life. He decided that he wanted to switch to a major in psychology, but his father did not approve. I finished my freshman year, dropped out, joined the military, I couldn't quite wrap my mind around the idea of killing other people, but I could, uh, I could see myself serving as a medic. He went through the induction, the interview, the physical exam. Everything was going well, Leo says, until he got to the psychiatrist. Who then uh, had the job of asking that notorious question uh, to try and determine whether you were homosexual or not. It probably won't come as a surprise, but at this point in his life, Leo was not out. Everything I knew about homosexuality was that uh, people responded to it very badly. And so, Leo lied. When the psychiatrist asked him if he had ever had a homosexual experience or any homosexual thoughts, he said, Nope. This was the first time I had ever told a lie of that magnitude. And to tell it to a representative of the government, which I had been taught to respect um, growing up in, in the 50s, I was a, a teenager in the 50s, 
Um, th- this was a very difficult task for me. And throughout his time in the military, Leo stayed hidden. However, there were a few incidents of other young men, uh, either in my units or uh, known to me, who got discovered as homosexual, sometimes caught in the midst of a sexual uh, activity with another male, and they were gone within 24 hours. And I knew that their life was ruined. While I would like to say that I served proudly as an openly gay-identified man, at that period of time, it would, it would have been foolhardy, and those of us who were in the military were mostly very deeply hidden. And for those of us who were only in for uh, two, three, four years, uh, we didn't even have the opportunity to uh, identify one another, so there was no no sense of support at all. It, it was a very difficult time. Still, Leo says his time in the military helped shape him into the man he is today. I, I think I grew up a lot while I was in the military. He was trained as a combat medic and was originally assigned to a program where he would have traveled from village to village giving vaccinations and public health training. But the program was canceled. Instead, he ended up serving on the staff of a general. I was there very early in the war. And so in many ways, it was a kind of like eight to five job for me. I would get to work early in the morning. I'd be there all day. I'd leave about five, six o'clock and mostly have the evenings off, occasionally um, some of the weekends. With the time off, he got to know local Vietnamese people. And despite the language barriers, he developed friendships. And I look back on that whole period uh, as an important part of the development of uh, who I was and who I've come to be. Following in your father's footsteps usually means something like taking over the family business. In Leo's case, it meant putting on the red suit. We lived in a little town next to the county seat, and the manager of the Kresge store, I guess that would be Kmart now, um, the five and dime back then, asked my father if he would be willing to uh, portray Santa for the store. His father said he'd do it, and what followed was a spectacular annual tradition. The street out in front of the store was blocked off and it was thronged with people, parents and their kids. Santa was scheduled to arrive at eight o'clock. And when eight o'clock came, a hush came over the crowd. And off in the distance, you could hear a helicopter. The National Guard unit was bringing a very special guest. They landed on the roof of the store, turned on the spotlight. My dad climbed over the front of the store and down the ladder, and the crowd just went crazy. That was Leo's father. It was spectacular. 
between that and the stories that he would tell about portraying Santa and interacting with uh, children and with parents was something that stayed with me for a long time. For years, Leo says, he thought about donning the Santa suit. And finally, in 1987, when his beard turned white, he decided to give it a shot. I talked with my dad. He was in Oklahoma by that time. And he packed up the suit and everything in the suitcase, mailed it to me. And that was what I first had to wear, which was really a great honor because uh, it was the suit he had worn all these years. His beard and hair was there. I didn't need the beard, but I was really impressed with it. It was apparently yak hair and was a very expensive beard for the time. His adventure began, and word started to spread that there was a new Santa in town. Mostly, I was not interested in being a mall Santa. That always felt like children were being herded through, that you had uh, two and a half minutes to talk to Santa, tell him what you wanted, get a picture, and move on to the next person. Maybe it was a little longer than that, but it, it really did not feel to me like there was the opportunity for Santa and the child to interact in a meaningful kind of way. So Leo only accepted invitations to events where he knew he'd have an opportunity to have meaningful interactions with the kids, where he could get to know them a little and tell some jokes. My favorite joke would be when a brother and sister would come up together and I would say, oh, I'm so glad to see you. How long have you two been married? And of course, this would just, the children would just go crazy because uh, Santa had made this terrible mistake thinking that they were a husband and wife when they really were just brother and sister. Sometimes, when the kids would get nervous, they'd forget what gift they were planning to ask Santa for. So, he'd say, You've been good this year, so look under the tree. I'm going to leave you a potato. This This was something they had to respond to as well because First of all, they didn't want a potato, and secondly, they were sort of um, annoyed that Santa would think that that was a worthwhile gift. My whole style of interacting with children was really um, a lot of fun and brevity, and yet being able to establish a little bit of a relationship in that, that short period of time. There were a lot of ways that Leo wasn't just any old Santa. Even though he had inherited a suit from his father, when it came time to bring in some new Santa wardrobe, Leo went all in. I really needed to have a backup suit because when you see a lot of children and one after another, they're on your lap uh, and some of them get very, very nervous um, and the chance of them um, peeing on you or throwing up on you is pretty substantial. Any old Santa suit wouldn't suffice as a backup to the suit he inherited from his dad. At the time, Leo had been working with small local theaters fundraising, so he called up some of the people he knew. I worked with um, the costume designer from McAllister College here in St. Paul, and together we created the look I wanted. 
I had a sort of Victorian Santa look about me, I suppose, because I didn't necessarily wear the coat closed, although I did sometimes. That Santa suit is something to see. The coat and hat are both a deep red and lined with thick white fur. And the hat isn't just the typical Santa hat. It's so long that the white pom-pom at the end reaches all the way down to his round Santa belly. And when people ask why his hat is so long, he has a response prepared. I have the hat, and when I'm doing an outside appearance, I wrap this thing around my throat, and I've also got a scarf. The sleeves flare out and are lined with green embroidery of pine needles and other Scandinavian themes. It just sort of gave an extra uh, oomph to the look of the suit. The coat, Leo says, weighs 25 pounds. It was a very heavy coat, and I was insistent that in making this, we were not making a costume. We were making real clothes for Santa. The other thing I thought was, well, some of the places I go, um, it's not Santa in his formal red suit. It's sort of Santa in his workshop attire. And so I cast around to try and think, well, what what sort of look do I want? And I looked at lots of pictures and um, did lots of searches on internet and that sort of thing. And finally decided on the look of Yulapuki, the Finnish Santa Claus. Yulapuki literally means Christmas goat in Finnish, and like a lot of Christmas traditions, is derived from pagan traditions. Yulapuki is one of the many Santa-esque characters that have all combined into modern-day Santa Claus. I used to joke with people that um, if they wanted me in my Yulapuki costume outfit, uh, I would be happy to come and stand in their yard for an hour because for all the world I look like what we would think of as a garden gnome. Leo's Yulapuki wore a white long-sleeve peasant shirt, red trousers, and a long blue vest embroidered with finished designs. Designing all this uh, and then actually wearing it for a number of years was uh, a lot of fun and people were very impressed with the costume. For all of Leo's costumes and his appearances as Santa Claus, the truth is that at the end of the day, He's here because he believes in the spirit of Christmas. I think the spirit of Christmas is still what it was for that real person, St. Nicholas. It's about remembering to help other people, especially those who need need the most help, and to reflect on how fortunate so many of us are, even if we think that we don't have everything that we'd like to have, there are people who are much worse off than we are, and that the spirit of Christmas should touch and soften all of our hearts to contribute to helping other people at that time and to carry that spirit forward. It should not just be about one day or one month. When we come back, 
the difference between St. Nicholas and Santa Claus, and some of Leo's work as an LGBTQ activist. Welcome back. Today we're talking to Leo Treadway, LGBTQ rights activist and real bearded Santa. Leo spent 30 years portraying Santa Claus, the last 10 of which he also started making appearances as St. Nicholas. Well, Santa Claus is the Americanized version of St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas is actually a real person. The original St. Nicholas was Greek born around 280 AD. He became Bishop of Mira a small Roman town in modern Turkey. He was known throughout the area as somebody who would go out of his way to help people in need. There's lots of stories about uh, this real person, St. Nicholas, and how he helped people and saved them in various ways. Lots of different groups claimed St. Nicholas as their patron saint. And so he became very popular. Not only is St. Nicholas the patron saint of children, sailors, and prisoners, he's also the patron saint of archers, bakers, bankers, brewers, embalmers, florists, newlyweds, pharmacists, spinsters, travelers, and, well, I could go on. When it comes to dressing like St. Nicholas, it comes down to dressing like a 4th century Catholic bishop. So he has the tall miter? A miter is that big pointy hat that the Pope wears. St. Nicholas also usually carries a crozier, which is a hooked staff that bishops often carried at the time. The image and the, the respect and fondness for this real character uh, moved slowly westward and then in Italy. Um, it began to take off and spread throughout the rest of Europe. The stories of St. Nicholas were interesting. One of the most popular stories in the Middle Ages told of St. Nicholas resurrecting three young boys that had been murdered, chopped up, and pickled by an evil innkeeper. It's no surprise that the story of St. Nicholas traveled all across the world. Then, there's St. Nicholas in the Netherlands. He traditionally arrives by steamship, and he comes from a faraway, strange place, which for people at that time apparently was Spain. And the story of St. Nicholas in the Netherlands is responsible for the name Santa Claus as we know it. And they began to talk about Santa Claus, which in uh, the Dutch language, Santa is Saint, Claus is the diminutive form of Nicholas. Can you hear it? Santa Claus. Santa Claus. Really close. And so in America, Santa Claus was all about the jolly old man who brought you gifts if you were good and left them at your home on Christmas Eve. In Europe, the real St. Nicholas, the forebear of Santa Claus, the emphasis was more on helping other people, and in some ways that was the determination of whether you were worthy of gifts from St. Nicholas or not. As Leo made more and more appearances as St. Nicholas, he found the focus on good works a lot more interesting than the classic American Santa Claus's focus on gifts. For some time, I had been growing less comfortable with the notion that in my Santa Claus persona, 
the whole expected interaction was, hi, how are you? What's your name? Have you been good? Well, yes, of course you've been good. Um, what would you like me to bring you for Christmas? And then most of the time was spent with the child telling me and describing uh, sometimes in great detail um, what they wanted me to bring them. In December of 2007, the Great Recession hit the U.S., and Christmas was looking a little bleaker than usual. And because by then I was also doing St. Nicholas appearances, um, I began to think, what if I asked children not have you been good, but to actually inquire what they had done that might qualify them as having been good? In other words, how have they helped other people? His St. Nicholas appearances were usually with groups of children and their parents. Where I would tell stories about how I had helped other people. And so the whole emphasis was on helping other people. The kids who came to see St. Nicholas expected to hear about good deeds, but the children that came to visit Santa weren't as prepared for a question like that. And I will tell you that that stopped some children dead in their tracks. There was just this uncomfortable silence. And so I would somehow um, sometimes have to help them a little bit and say, well, I know you probably have helped people. You helped mom or dad. Slowly, I could pull out some things. Although in some cases, it became very clear that um, the child I was talking with really had not done much to help other people in that year. But at the same time, some children I talked to took the question, rolled with it, and started to tell me um, how they had uh, defended another child in school uh, to stop them from being bullied, um, how they arranged little projects to um, collect food and donate it to a food bank. Um, some of the children were truly creative in how they understood that they had helped other people. That sort of settled it. I was going to do that question from then on. Leo says that this little question made a huge difference in the quality of interactions he had with kids. First of all, they had to think. Secondly, they had to really ponder whether they had been helpful to anyone or not, if they'd done anything other than think about what, what they were going to get for Christmas. Last year, Leo decided to retire and donate his beautifully crafted Santa outfits to the Minnesota Historical Society. The plan was that the following year, which would have been this year, all of Santa's outfits would have been a part of a big holiday display. The people in the garments section were very excited to get some mannequins made up and then to dress them um, in this outfit because I gave them I gave them the entire outfit. So they had my boots, um, they had my pants, they had my shirts, uh, two or three shirts, um, the vest the jacket, the hat, 
um, the bag I carried, everything. So it plus then also the Yulapuki outfit with with all the same um, total amount of clothes and things, and including um, boots that um, came from Russia. They they're they're a heavy felt boot, and you can wear them in weather that is like 20 below or something and still your feet will be warm. The plan had been to set out the display and invite people to the Minnesota History Center to visit the exhibit. So that was the plan. Obviously, now since um, um, the pandemic, places are closed, uh, things are limited, The this big display is set aside maybe next year, but not this year because um, it just is not safe to have something which would draw um, large crowds of people in into the center. So I, I applaud their um, their decision not to have the display this year. It's somewhat disappointing, but they, they will do it next year, I'm sure. Hopefully the pandemic will be under control by then. Leo's gift of the Santa outfits was not the first contributions he had made to the Minnesota Historical Society. Uh, the Minnesota Historical Society is mandated to preserve the history of things which are Minnesotan. Previously, Leo had donated his own personal collection of historical documents from his time as an advocate for queer rights. Which was to help them establish a GLBT, well, actually, I suppose I'm dating myself when I say it that way, uh, a GLBT archive of history here in Minnesota. I think they probably received in a series of donations from me something like a hundred banker boxes full of documents and um posters and buttons and uh, all sorts of things that helped kind of flesh out and tell the story of um, GLBT people in Minnesota, uh, at least from the perspective in which I had been involved. And I'm the first to say that while my donation was quite extensive, uh, it even for the time in which I was active in the community, um, did not cover everything, nor did it cover every perspective, which would be important in terms of looking at the history. Leo also convinced some of his fellow activists to donate their collections too. Fortunately, at the University of Minnesota, we have something called the uh, Treader Collection, a friend of mine, Gene Treader, um, had collected um, historical material about LGBT people internationally. And so his collection is really focused on the experience of LGBT people around the world uh, and is well documented. And others have contributed their files and uh, materials to his collection. So they, they really kind of, um, 
fit together very nicely. One is a broader collection from the perspective of uh, LGBT people and experience, whereas mine is uh, focused in a slightly different direction. Everything is related to LGBT people in Minnesota. One of the places Leo focused his activism work was HIV AIDS. I had been to the March on Washington and seen the display, um, the first display of the uh, Names Project AIDS quilt. The Names Project AIDS Memorial Quilt is the largest ongoing community art project in the world. It was first displayed in 1987 on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., during the National March on Washington for lesbian and gay rights. At the time, it covered a space larger than a football field and included 1,920 panels, each representing a different person who had died from AIDS. I was so impacted by that that I thought, we really need something to kind of jolt everybody in Minnesota about the impact of HIV AIDS and how many people are contracting it and dying from it and dying very quickly at that time. When Leo got home from the March on Washington, he reached out to the Names Project Foundation. He knew they were planning to take the quilt on a tour across the U.S. So he asked if they would stop in Minneapolis. Well, they very quickly agreed to that and gave us uh, a tentative time frame to begin working on. Leo started mobilizing and found people who felt the same way he did about the potential of the quilt. This massive arts project, this massive memorial, was something that would really energize people to get involved in meaningful ways in response to the HIV-AIDS crisis and perhaps impact those living in our cities and our state who were negatively disposed to doing much of anything except being aggressively negative. The group got together and volunteered in all sorts of different capacities. There were some people who sat at intersections of the quilt and offered support. At that time, um, it was very difficult to get very far, walk very far into the quilt display and not be emotionally impacted. So we, we had tons of people out there to help those who were coming to view. Local and state leaders participated in reading the names, which went on continuously throughout most of the display. There were people who served as marshals and people who organized quilt-making activities to help people contribute to their own panels. It really involved a lot of people, and it's one of the things I look back on um, with a great deal of pride because working with all these folks uh, who agreed with me in terms of why it was important to bring this um, it's one of the most moving events of my life, and I like to think that uh, it impacted how people here in Minnesota began to think about HIV AIDS. The quilt traveled all over the country for the following 30 years. In November of last year, the National AIDS Memorial in San Francisco became the permanent caretaker of the quilt, 
And today, the AIDS Memorial Quilt includes almost 50,000 panels dedicated to more than 100,000 individuals and weighs 54 tons. On December 1st of every year, more than half of the quilt goes on display around the country, educating people and memorializing the lives that were lost. When I asked Leo what he wanted for Christmas this year, he seemed a little caught off guard. What do I want for Christmas? <laughs> Nevertheless, he had a Santa-worthy answer. I would like for a healing of the divisions in our country to begin. I would like to see some substantial change around issues of institutional racism in our country, in our culture, in the very fabric of who we are. I'd like to see something substantial happen for the increasing number of people who are homeless. And apart from what we have witnessed at the national level, I would like to see real leadership that addresses the pandemic and helps us move in a direction of dealing with that and caring for one another in the process, respecting one another and realizing that the control of the pandemic really lies in our hands and that if we mask up, maintain social distance, avoid large groups, practice good, healthy care of ourselves, that we can stop this thing. That's what I would like for Christmas. I would hope that you remember that the spirit of Christmas is about helping one another. And in our country at this time, we need all of us to care for each other. If we do that, we will have a Merry Christmas and a very, very happy new year. Thanks for listening. Pride is a production of Straw Hut Media. If you like the show, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're tuning in from. Share us with your friends, subscribe, and follow us on Instagram and Twitter, at Pride, and on Facebook, at Pride Podcast. You can follow me, at Levi Chambers. Pride is produced by me, Levi Chambers, Maggie Bowles, and Ryan Tillotson. Edited by Sebastian Alcala. As I'm looking at my computer screen,
two windows have popped up. Both of them are asking me to contribute to the retirement fund for each of you. Well, definitely don't do that. No. <laughs> I already wore out that joke with Ryan earlier. 